Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your two hosts, Ben Wilson, joined with... Michael Burke. Hi everyone. Yeah, today we're going to be having a bit of a discussion on something that's near and dear to my heart. Something I've been working on for many, many years. And it's talking about platform execution. And we want to discuss what's all about doing machine learning on Apache Spark. And what are the benefits discuss how to do it, what are the different ways that you can do it, why should you think about doing it, and when should you do it. So Yeah, that sounds great to me. <laughs> so you had some questions you'd like to, to discuss, Michael. If Go ahead and take it away, man. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah, so I think we'll use the standard format where I ask dumb questions and Ben answers them with wisdom and poise. It's, it's worked out well in the past. So for starters, a lot of operations theoretically can run on one core using loops and non-vectorized methods. And Spark a while back came onto the scene and really transformed a lot of map reduce operations and Hadoop operations. And it's now sort of the industry standard for parallelized computing, both for ML, ETL, streaming, and all sorts of things. So Ben, can you concisely say what Spark is? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, you kind of you kind of covered it in that intro, as in Spark is an, an evolutionary step on top of the MapReduce paradigm that was introduced by Yahoo and a bunch of universities when they created the Hadoop system, which... That was a stepping stone from previous iterations of processing, uh, like basically massively parallel processing systems. And Spark's departure from Hadoop is in the way that it does its computation. Instead of it being a disk-based operation system, where it's, it's effectively issuing mapping commands over files located in, in a file store, Spark, Spark's approach is to load once into memory from source system, which is disk, and then do all of the operations that it needs to do in memory. And that includes calculations on the data, uh, joining of data is all done in memory. And you don't have interim stages, you, or at least you don't need to have interim stages that are materialized uh, and checkpointed to disk. There are times when you can do that, but that's not something that's required. And because everything is in memory, this opened up this this amazing possibility that the people at my company at, at Databricks early on, uh, when they were working through that very early version that Matei came up with and 
the other founders uh, of Databricks were working on at, at the uh, <coughs> AMP lab in Berkeley. This, this in-memory processing allowed for an incredible amount of optimizations to happen in which that eventually moved into systems that exist within Spark like Catalyst and Tungsten that allow you to issue basically DML instruction code from a number of different languages and optimize those instructions in such a way that it can become incredibly inefficient. Now, if you were going to do something in, you know, let's say we're doing something in base Python and we're, we're operating on CSV files that are sitting on our laptop in some folder, when you want to do an operation on that, and all of your data is in a, in a single file, there's no real difference between that and any other system like how Spark would do it. You load the file into memory, and Python's going to do operations, whatever you're telling it to do. And when you're done, you're going to write data out somewhere, or you're going to display an image, or you, whatever it is that your code is doing, it's going to do that. The optimization comes in when you're actually having to do things that are not a demonstration or going through a tutorial, real-world problems where it's like, all right, what do I do when I have to join 37 data sets together in order to create a feature set? Or what happens when I have to issue operations where the interim state of that operation wouldn't fit into memory on my computer, where I would just completely fill up my RAM, the program crashes because there's no more usable operating memory. So systems like Spark can look at the stages of operations and break and chunk those up into tasks. And this allows incredible scalability of use cases on the platform. So you can do things like, you know, train a model on terabytes of data, even though you you don't have the ability to spin up a single machine that can hold that much data in memory, uh, or doing ETL processing of petabytes of data. You're not going to you're not going to be able to spin up a, a VM anywhere in the cloud that has, you know, 50 petabytes of, of RAM and the number of CPUs required to, to handle that processing in relatively short amount of time. So that, that whole distributed nature of that architecture lends itself to large-scale computing tasks. But there are other things that Spark can do for ML that are not relegated to big data. And that aspect is something that whenever I've had conversations with people about using Spark for something that it doesn't seem like it's designed for, they're like, well, I only have, you know, 50,000 rows of data and, and 20 columns. It's not that big of big data. I'm like, yeah, but you got to tune that thing, right? They're like, well, yeah, I have to tune it. I'm like, well, let me show you something. Instead of you doing a for loop on your machine on a single VM, let's distribute that. Let's copy that data, that small data to 20 machines. And let's have each of those do an optimization iteration of, you know, an optimization algorithm. Let's let's see which one wins out. But let's look at the wall clock time when we have 20 machines doing 20 experiments in parallel. Yeah, so that, that transitions nicely into one of my questions. Often you have scenarios. So take a, an example of writing a bootstrap algorithm. You have one base piece of data and you need to create small variations and small versions of that data, ideally in a parallel setting. So an example, in a non-parallel setting, write a for loop, do your operation, take the mean, output it to an array. Very straightforward, but you could theoretically increase it by nx speed, where n is the number of clusters that you have. How would you go about doing that then? I wouldn't do it by number of clusters per se. It would just be the number of workers. Yeah, excuse so, me, I'm, I'm in course. Yeah, yeah. 
So we would we would take whatever that base data is that's that we need to do a generative operation on, and we would write a function that contains the logic of whatever we're trying to do. So that our seed state is our data itself. And then you could also introduce ranges of operations of things you wanted to do. You want to do a pathing algorithm. Well, you can set a a first stage of operation that is that seeds out to different executors and saying, you know, if we're doing traveling salesman problem and we're we're going from, you know, Chicago to Dallas, what's the most efficient way to get to London? Well, we could say, okay, from Chicago to Dallas, do we want to go Atlanta? Do we want to go Albuquerque? Do we want to go Denver, San Diego, Los Angeles? Each of those first stage steps that we would take, we can push those out to different executors. And then they can handle it from there and say, all right, now do your next, your iterations independently uh, on each executor in parallel. So it gives you the ability to minimize that, like a first round of iteration, which can dramatically increase performance uh, and scales to however many machines, exactly as you said, that the end number of, of uh, workers that you put on a cluster is going to make that just go that much faster. That's that's an interesting scenario that you brought up because that's one of the hardest problems to optimize when computationally. Uh, the, the space complexity and the computational complexity of those sorts of Markov chain problems are, they're expensive no matter where you do them. The goal is where do you set your boundaries when you're doing simulations? If you're doing stuff like, all right, I got to do causality analysis. I want to run a bunch of simulations and see which one actually points to a likelihood of of being the root cause here of this behavior that I'm witnessing. The only way to solve it is brute force. And the only way to make brute force go faster is in a distributed environment. Got it. And you also mentioned another thing that made Spark effective in that a lot of the Hadoop and MapReduce operations worked on disk. Um, and Spark completely transformed all of its operations to memory. Um, and I was curious, when I was learning about Spark, I was curious what the difference is and reading one megabyte sequentially from memory is a hundred times faster than reading one megabyte sequentially from disk. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, by keeping everything in memory, um, those operations become a lot faster. And obviously Spark has a lot of backend optimizations as well, but fundamentally keeping everything in memory, I would argue is one of its main claim to fame because it allows for a lot faster processing than most other paradigms. Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> In modern day cloud-based implementations, like on Databricks, Databricks Spark is is not going to have that same relationship. It's going to be much faster uh, than it, than the Hadoop comparison or the the disk versus memory comparison. There are optimizations that have been put in place that make every stage of the journey, not just accessing data being faster, but optimizing kind of, as you said, like the, the optimizations that's in there on top of the in-memory processing, the stuff like figuring out how to minimize unnecessary shuffles, figuring out how to optimally manage the garbage collect processes on on objects that are no longer required to be held in the heap on the JVM. And that rewriting of your code part of it it's not actually rewriting. It's not. It's not gener- like code generation, unless you're using AutoML on Databricks. Then it is. But if you're talking about the execution, because it's a lazily evaluated language, that's another reason why this is so important uh, for its performance. You can send it 
I think it would be easier if I explained like how it would work in, in say, a Jupyter notebook. You go in through, you're writing a bunch of operations in a Jupyter notebook, and you're executing cell after cell after cell. First cell is read data file from CSV, and then second cell is, you know, instantiate a model and do some, some feature engineering work, and then we're going to train the model. Each of these operations, they're actually getting executed. It's a greedily evaluated language. It needs to execute line by line in order to maintain state in Python. Now, when you're talking about Spark, it's only going to evaluate your everything that you've told it to do, even if you're in an interactive REPL, like, like in a, a notebook on Spark. It's only going to evaluate and execute anything once it has to. Once you tell it to do an operation like write data out or display something on screen or calculate the the training error loss, those are actual execution barriers. But everything that went up to that point, it's all code that, that Spark is able to do whatever it wants to do in order to optimize what you told it to do. So in the case of, hey, I have 15 tables that I'm joining. I wrote a whole bunch of SQL to do these joins, well, the chances that you're going to write that SQL in a perfect way that's going to be performant for the, the execution that needs to happen, pretty much slim to none. Even if you're an expert at SQL, what Spark's going to do is going to look at all of those operations that you've told it to do, and it's going to say, well, if I, it's going to be more efficient if I take data, you know, data source number one, join it to data source number 17 first on this inner join. And then the result of that, I'm going to do a left outer join with these other eight data sets. And then I'm going to do a skew join or a broadcast join or something. It, it's going to look at what the most effective way is to materialize that data set. And we'll use that instruction set accordingly. So it, it, it's yeah. sort of a smart engine for that. Yeah. Yeah. Lazy evaluation is really effective. And I have found that it actually does not impact my workflow at all. Theoretically, you would want intermediary steps along the way. But if you're just thinking critically about what the end result needs to be, and you have something that will optimize how to get there, that's, I mean, really, really powerful. You don't mm-hmm. really need to think about the intermediary steps as much. So I've really enjoyed that aspect of Spark. So I also thought it would be useful to, before we get more into the ML side, to talk about how exactly Spark works in terms of distributing work across different cores. So there's often a, a breakdown where we have a single master node, and then we have a bunch of worker nodes. Mm-hmm. And how is data and work transferred between the master and the worker? Excellent question. So data isn't. It shouldn't be. There are cases where you would, where you would say, I have data on my worker nodes, which is where it should live, but you need to do some operation on a subset of that. So you do a collect. Collect is telling the executors, the the workers, saying, hey, I need your data. I need a, a copy of it, at least. So please send it over to me and I'm going to do some operation and I'm going to tell you what to do later on. It's very dangerous to do that if you don't really know what you're doing, simply because you can very easily overwhelm the driver. If you collect too much data to it, you can fill up the heap and it can crash. But there are plenty of times, I've done it thousands of times, where I I actually need to collect information. I do a group by an aggregation. I want to get, you know, some sort of dictionary that I can then operate on in the next stage of the code. Well, the driver actually needs to know that. And what I mean by the driver needs to know that is that the driver is the only one that actually knows what's going on. So the driver is where your code executes. The workers, they're clueless. They have no idea what is going on. 
They don't have access to the instruction code that the user is submitting. They're just processing RDD tasks that the driver tells it to do. And what I mean by an RDD task is that's what the workers are actually doing. So we have this this notion of a resiliently distributed data set in Spark. And under the covers, it's a it's basically just a sequence of collection files. So when we're looking at data as read on a, on a machine in a particular language, so we're in the JVM on Spark, and when we're looking at a row of data, that is a strongly typed association of sequences. And those sequences are what we, we call rows, but that row is just a collection of types. So if we have user ID, day of year, and year as three columns of data in a table under the covers to Scala and Java. That's just an array of arrays of long integer integer. And when the RDD aspect of that is we we have a concept of provenance of where each row comes from. So we have a linkage to the source system saying, hey, I know where this row came from. It came from a partition that was located on disk at this location. And then usually we're talking about object store. Like it came from this part file on S3 or ADLS Gen 2. And we can do operations on that part file on any of those executors. It's basically whoever picks it up, whoever's the one that actually ends up reading that partition, we're going to execute arbitrary code from catalyst if we're using the data frame api and do some operation maybe we're mapping over that and or maybe we're doing a fold over that where we're calculating some sort of interim state of aggregation as we're going over some primary key that we've submitted whatever the operation may be all at the end of the day we're, we're just talking about manipulating arrays of arrays of arrays and that's it's really all it is um, but the rdd aspect is that each part of that that meta array that wraps up that entire data set, collections of rows are distributed to different machines. And that's what the RDD aspect is. So we can have a command and control machine, the driver, that can talk to n number of workers and tell them, hey, you need to take these these parts of this larger data set and do this operation on them and then tell me when you're done. And then the driver waits for the return from each of the workers saying, yep, I'm done. I completed all my tasks. And the driver says, okay, now I need you to do this operation on this data. Or, hey, you have some data that you need to send to this other machine. So go and do that and tell me when you're done. Got it. So you mentioned that data are distributed onto worker nodes. Mm-hmm. Two questions. The first, so these are called partitions. They're partitions of the data, and they're often partitioned by rows. So you take a column, and let's say if it has three unique values, it might partition that data set using each value. So value number one goes to this partition, value number two goes to that partition, value number three goes to this partition. Two questions related to that. First one is, let's say you take a data set, and you don't specify any partition key. How are data partitioned by default? Uh, the internal method of a repartition is it's, it's just done by a hash key, and it'll figure out what the most efficient way of doing that is. But it, it it's kind of expensive to do that. And I do, I've seen that in, in people using Spark before. They're like, oh, I'm just going to do a dot repartition, and that's going to shuffle all my data around and try to balance things out. And a lot of people don't look at what the signature is of that that function. 
or that method where you can do a bunch of different things with that. You can try to enforce that key location or co-locality of a particular grouping key. You'd say, hey, repartition by this column and attempt to co-locate all of that data. By the way, that is a shuffle, and that is exactly what a group by key is actually doing under the covers. Just saying, hey, put all the, the data for this key on this worker and then put all of it on another one. But if you don't specify anything other than utilizing the default of partition count, which is set at the Spark session level, just defaulted as 200, you're just going to get 200 partitions across your cluster that are going to contain data. And it's tr- going to attempt to balance it out by estimated size. Why do you partition by row and not by column? So why are rows split up instead of columns split up? Man, that's a good question. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. That's, uh, that's an architecture question for why Spark was designed in the way that it was, which is in order to get the maximum amount of parallel computation that you can while maintaining a the ability to reference other elements of a contained data vector. Uh, you want to make sure that all of the column data for a row is referenceable by that column. So if you have a row of data that is user, date, some other IDs that are in there and some double value, if there's some conditional logic that you need to apply to add a column to that that's going to allow you to calculate something new. Most of the conditional logic you're going to have is going to be referenced by that particular row of data. So you would be referencing those other column positions. So it's really critical to keep that as as its own thing. All of it is married together forever unless you explicitly say, hey, drop this particular column across the entire data set or, or you add new things to it. But there's no, the only way that to really separate that concept of column wise operations is to transpose a table. And there are ML algorithms that are, that do that on Spark that do matrix trans, transpositions. Uh, they're really expensive. Just be warned. But they're in the ML lib API, uh, the RDD API. You can do all that stuff in Java and Scala. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, cause I, it makes perfect sense that you would want for SQL like operations to have sort of a mini copy of the data set where different columns can interact with each other because that's what most of the transformations would look like. But I could see scenarios where you would want a single column onto a single into a single worker. So good to know that that is theoretically possible. I would call that really advanced Spark programming to do stuff like that. I wouldn't even attempt to do something like that with the data frame API just because it's really not designed for that. But in the RDD API, you're exposed to extreme low-level APIs with Spark. And provided that you're comfortable with digging into source code and really understanding how a lot of that stuff works, you can do some pretty 
pretty e- extremely low level things. Like you can directly access blast operators if you want to through Apache Breeze and you can do like implement your own version of a matrix transformation if you so choose. It's all open source. It's very hard to do that and to get it to be performant, but it's possible. Cool. So I was thinking that we could potentially go through some of the key topics. And then as this is a machine learning podcast, start getting to more of the ML components. Question number one relates to Spark SQL and some of those transformations that are fundamental to what Spark does really well. So I was wondering if you could walk us through what is an aggregation um, and how they work under the hood. An aggregation in Spark SQL. So we talked through what a group pie basically is. It's that repartitioning of... If I want to know how many people are are alive in America right now by state, I say group by state, and I want a count of humans in the each each state. What Spark is going to do is it's going to instruct the executors to figure out which basically how many entries of that key state exist on each executor, and it's going to tell each one to well count is actually count's not going to require shuffle but a count would just Let's require doing average yeah it would it would just iterate through each of the collections that it has and then at the end report back but so let's take <clears> average yeah let's average would be average a, an average or the most expensive one would be a median calculation sure you would have to co-locate the data first so however many workers that you have, they're going to try to balance, balance out one another to uh, get the data that it needs to answer that question. And then on the executor itself in the RDD operation for an average, that's a, that's relatively simple. It's just going to do a sum uh, in Scala over that, that particular value and then divide by the count. Median's a little bit trickier. So that's going to have to basically copy that, copy that collection and sort it. And that sort order that it, returns, it's going to have to get the midpoint of it. So that's why that takes a little bit longer to run. Let's say we're taking a median and we have an extremely large data set. So let's say we're grouping, uh, we have 100 million rows. The key that we're grouping by has two distinct values. So it's called zero or one. Let's assume that all of the zeros and all of the ones cannot fit onto a single execute. What happens then? For a median value or for what? Sure. You're going to get into a condition where everything's going to slow down like crazy because Spark has a mode where if you don't have enough memory available to perform an RDD operation, it's going to do interim spill. And that means that it'll start chunking up the processing step that it needs to do while using an accumulator locally. So it's basically doing a a fold left or a fold right on, on the operation. And in order for it to process data that it can't fit into memory, it has to write it to local disk on that particular executor. And as you said before, that 100 times slower, it really is. It, it's very, very slow. And what what you usually see this happen on is somebody doing a sample on like for an ML task. And they're like, well, I trained my algorithm or I did my feature engineering on a sample of the data to make sure that everything worked. And it was like 2% of the full production data set. And then it was so fast, it, it ran like five minutes. And then they they try a training run in staging environment against production size data. And they see that it's it's taking days to run. And they ask an expert, they come in and they say, well, open up the Spark UI. Let's look at what's actually happening. And you look at you know the executors and you see that terabytes of data are being spilled to disk. 
And the solution around that is to don't spill the desk. Any operation that you do, you should be sizing the cluster appropriately large enough to accommodate that. And there's ways that you could solve this particular problem that we were just talking about, where you have a skew problem where to answer that, to answer that problem where you have too much data that will not be able to fit on on a single executor. Well, is there a way that you can chunk that data up? Like, do you need to have that average of that value or that median of this particular key that has 10 terabytes of data in order to satisfy that? Do you really need that? Or can you chunk that, that operation up so that you can split it out across a bunch of di- you know distributed machines? And there's clever ways of doing that, like salting the key and doing that interim calculation. And then at the end, you're you're doing a final, much smaller operation on like a summary of the summary data. Got it. So theoretically, if you're calculating median and it did not fit, all the data did not fit onto a single cluster, um, but it fit onto three, or sorry, not cluster, four. Second time I said. Um, so it did not fit onto a single core, but it could fit onto three distinct cores. Um, does Spark have a way to distribute the top third in, in terms of rank to the to one cluster, the middle third to another cluster, and the bottom third to another cluster? Or does it have to do all of that on one core? And then if there's not enough space, spill that to this. It depends on the instruction set. So certain operations, you have to co-locate the data. And there's only the only way to answer that particular question is to have all of the data in memory that a single core can access. But there's a lot of operations that can be distributed. And Spark's default operation mode is if it can be distributed, distribute it. If it can't, and it's an expensive operation, sometimes you'll actually get a warning in the Spark UI. When you execute something, it's like, warning, you might not want to do this. And in the documentation, things like that are usually called out pretty explicitly about like, hey, this is a really expensive operation. You might not want to do this. And you'll see implementations that I can spark MLlib versus spark ML. Uh, one's the data frame API for spark ML, like distributed machine learning. The other one is the RDD-based API. There's not parity between those two. The reason being is it's incredibly challenging and complex to get some of the RDD APIs to work with the data frame API because of how decisions are made about how to shuffle data around and how to optimize operations. And thinking through that, uh, take of that what you will um, about how certain ML tasks, it's it's not that it's impossible to do in an optimized way through a high-level API. It's just there's not enough justification for the effort required to implement that. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. How do joins work? Magically. Um, it's all about, it, it's not that different from how it works on uh, an OLAP database where you have some semblance in Spark of a schema associated with any data set. That's why a lot of the, the first things that you do when you read in a data set is tell it which columns are which and what types they are. You can have it infer it, and that's what it'll do if you don't specify it. But it has a general metadata understanding of that data. It knows you know where each part of the, the data exists on each executor. Uh, it knows which rows are where. But the, the key aspect of it, of knowing what that type is, uh, allows it to understand 
what it can and can't do with that sort of join operation. But if we have two data sets that are of equal size that are distributed out across a bunch of workers, we're going to look at the values that exist within those keys on each executor. And there will be a an optimization stage where it will determine what, well, there's a way that open source works and there's the way that Databricks works. I have to be careful about what I explain here, about which one works in what way. It's fine if you make a mistake. We're not worried. <laughs> but there's a, there's a, some very clever uh, software that has been written that allows for uh, like a phased approach for this, where it'll do computations and evaluate what the expectation will be and adjust dynamically as stages are executed. And we'll say, well, I have all the keys that satisfy this join on executor one. I have 80% of the keys for the second key on executor two. And then this other 20% are, are on executor three. It'll prefetch from executor three and say, hey, put the data over here on executor two so that when we do this join, we don't have to you know, do any additional shuffling. So it, the system tries to minimize the amount of shuffles that need to happen. And once that is sort of satisfied, it'll, uh, it'll start doing that join. And that join is exactly what you might think it would be. So how would you, how would you concatenate or you know, intersect lists in Python? You have a list with common keys, or you can think of it as a dictionary in Python. If you're going to say, hey, I want to take dictionary A and I want to combine it with dictionary B, any keys that exist are going to be persisted between them. Anything yes, it's that, almost like creating a set. Yeah, that's actually exactly what it is. So in Scala, that collection is, they're all immutable under the covers. So it's not like you're actually mutating and, and modifying that RDD. You're making a copy of the intersection of those two sets. I'm saying, and then there's some filtering conditions that say, hey, if I say I only want these four columns out of the 200 that were part of this this pre-join of, of these two tables, it's going to pre-filter on those those things. It's going to say, hey, drop the other 196 columns. I don't need those. And now intersect these two and give the result. Got it. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or... If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Cool. So we're we're already at 40 minutes, so I think we're going to be skipping the ML portion, saving that for next round. But sure. there's still a couple more things on architecture and sort of data transformations. Um Another question that I have is, what is MPP architecture? I mean, MPP is multiple, uh, the uh, massively parallel processing. And that's effectively what, you know, Hadoop or Spark is. It's the concept of you can almost infinitely scale the problem to a certain degree uh, just by adding additional execution machines for the data processing. You have a single command and control or a group of command and control machines that are determining what those subordinate machines are doing. So you can just distribute out the work and operations. It's still limited by Newtonian physics, though. I've heard people tout like, oh, there's no limit to how big you can create a spark cluster. Yeah, there's there's always a limit. That being said, I have seen some truly astronomically large clusters started 
during my time working at Databricks that contain more more worker nodes than I thought were possible. And you typically need What's a the most you've seen. Uh, the largest cluster I've 